turn in your Bible, we're going to look in Matthew 6 today. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, just ask that you'll examine our hearts today. Help us to examine our hearts that we can see, Lord, where our loyalties lie, where our treasure is. Speak that to us clearly and deal with us, Father. And we thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. All right, so we're in Matthew 6, and, uh, you know, the first half of Matthew 6, Jesus repeatedly warns about hypocrisy. You know, people that want to be seen of men, praised for their giving, their praying, their fasting. And hypocrisy, in a lot of ways, it's a, if I can put it this way, it's a plague that affects everybody. I mean, all of us have been guilty of it at some point in our life. So he gives us the only cure, the only known cure for that disease of the heart. And what that is is that we need to make our ultimate goal, our ultimate desire to please our Heavenly Father and look to only to Him to be rewarded, only to Him to be pleasing in His eyes. So we give just because we're obeying Him. He wants us to give to help somebody out, and we're just obeying Him, not doing it for the praise of men. And we pray because we know that only He can meet our needs and meet the needs of someone else. So we don't do that to be seen of men. And why do we fast? So that people will think we're spiritual, and we know that's not the reason we fast, isn't it? Why do we fast? Because we have a need. <laughs> Lord, we need your help. So whether we're fasting on behalf of ourselves or someone else, but there's a need there. Or we need to have his presence more in our lives or his power or insight or direction. And so our Heavenly Father wants us to make him our everything and the reason that we do anything, if I can say it that way. Because that's the way that our Lord Jesus Christ lived. John 8, 2, he says this. He says, he, the Father that sent me, is with me. And he says, the Father has not left me alone, he says, for I do always those things that please him. Now, none of us are going to be able to say we've lived like that, but Jesus did. I mean, every minute of his life. That's incredible, isn't it? When you think about that, when you think about all the times that we don't live to please the Father. But yet, as regenerate, born-again Christians, that really is what he's asking us to do. Paul wrote this in Colossians 1.10. He says, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And if we think about it, it's just easy to get our mind off of it. Why wouldn't we want to please him above everybody else, including ourselves? Hasn't he loved us more than anyone else has with what he's done, with what he was willing to sacrifice for us? Romans 5, 8 says God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, his enemies, it says Christ died for us. Romans 5, 10 says for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled by God through the death of his son. I mean, that's how generous he is. That's how gracious he is that he lowered himself when we were his enemies. Didn't care less about him, anything about him. But yet he lowered himself to reconcile us, to be the sacrifice that we needed, took the punishment that we deserved. And so what we see here in, in the rest of this chapter after the first half, verses 19 through 34, is Jesus says he gave us his greatest treasure at a tremendous price, and he wants us to make him our greatest treasure. So let's begin reading in verse 19, Matthew 6, 19. And he says, lay up not for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, he says, there will your heart be also. And that's the title of the message. 
The light of the body, he says, is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? And he ends at verse 24, he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. And that word, you cannot, that cannot is a very strong word, and it means it's impossible. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon. So the first thing we see looking in verses 19 and 20 is everybody is laying up treasures somewhere. So it's telling us some people are laying up their treasures on earth and some are laying up their treasures in heaven. And I talked to a guy yesterday. He's like, I don't think there's anything beyond this life. This is it. I mean, he's laying all of his treasures up here. And everybody, when they do that, their treasures vary. So what's he talking about when he says the treasures on earth, the treasures of earth? He's talking about any valuable thing you have, anything that can perish or anything that can be lost in one way or another. And so the most obvious thing he's talking about from the context of this verse is money, financial security or things. We all have our things. And so is Jesus saying that it's wrong to have things? Is that what he's telling us? Is that what he's saying here? You can't have money, cars, houses, or even a boat. So it's not having the things that's a problem. What's the problem? It's when you love the things, when you love money, when you make them your things, your most important goals. That's when Jesus has an issue because when you do that, he says what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. What did Solomon say? He says, When you do that, you're chasing after the wind when you're making things here. And that's really what he's saying here. Because he wrote this, Solomon in chapter 2. He said, I did that. I chased everything. He said, I didn't hold myself back from a thing. He says, I increased my possessions. Solomon said, I built houses. I planted vineyards, gardens, orchards, all kinds of fruit trees. I got servants, flocks, and herds. He collected silver and gold, had the best band in the world at the time, musicians and singers, he said he had. And he went on and said, so I became great and increased more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Did that satisfy him? And you're like, well, I'd like to give it a try, see if that would satisfy me. But here's what he wrote at the end. He says, he went on to write, he says, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish Gave his heart to everything, had everything anybody could imagine. He said, I looked at all of it and it was meaningless, is what he said. It was vanity. It was like chasing the wind. You chase the wind, you try to get hold of it, you think, and there's nothing there. He's saying that's what it was like. It was like chasing the wind. No prophet under the sun. So Jesus is saying, like Solomon, if your heart is set on gaining things, it ultimately is what? It's going to be left empty. When you think you have them, guess what happens? They are gone, just like the wind, just like grabbing hold of smoke. So listen, everybody has treasures. We all have treasures, things that we value the most. And so some, it's their families, some people, more and more in America, it's their pets, God forbid. So, you know, even a homeless person, you think, what treasures could they have? Well, look, that guy treasures his independence and lack of responsibility more than anything else. Doesn't want to give that up. And you have people that 
They like their homes, they treasure their looks, and a lot of money is spent on cosmetics and plastic surgery in this country. Some people, their treasure is people's opinions of them. So, what am I saying? There's nothing wrong with treasuring your family, your dog, your cat, or wanting people to like you. That's not the problem. It's just when they become, and here's where we just all have to examine our own hearts, don't we? When they become your ultimate treasure. When you're seeking those things, now we all have to ask ourselves if we're doing that, and we've all done it at times. All of us have been guilty. But when you're seeking those things more than you are the kingdom, the kingdom's kind of put on the back burner. You might pray, but not much. You might read your Bible, but very little this week. Like Starla said, seeking God, it's just not a priority every day. And we know when we've had those times. And here's the reason it's a problem. Because what do we know about all of those things? He tells us right there in verse 19. He says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Why? Because moth and rust will corrupt them. And where thieves break through and steal, moths, rust, or thieves are going to do in everything that you treasure eventually. That's what's going to happen. So what are moths? Moths are nature's corrosion upon our things. And rust represents what? Time. Time's going to do a lot of things in that you think you have. And thieves are just humanity's way of stealing what you have. And all three of those things tell us about the insecurity and the fleeting nature if we're worried about accumulating things in this life. Because listen to this. Listen to Proverbs 23, verses 4 to 5. It says this. He says, do not wear yourself out to become rich. Be wise enough to restrain yourself. When you gaze upon riches, they are gone, for they surely make wings for themselves and fly off into the sky like an eagle. And isn't that the way it is? Many times that's the way it is. So, you know, money can be here one day and gone the next. 2007, I've got more work than I can handle. Don't know how I'm going to handle everything that's coming in. And guess what happened? The stock market literally got cut in half. And all these rich people that I worked for, guess what they didn't want to do anymore? Spend their money. A lot of people I work for, oh, we were getting ready to retire. Da, da, da. That's definitely on hold now. They lost a bunch of it. And that's the way it is with money. People got their security in the stock market, the way the economy seems to be going. And that's what we're reading there in Proverbs. Don't put your security there. Don't put your security in that you've got a good stock that's just really climbing. Because it could drop off tomorrow, couldn't it? That's what happened. It was like overnight in 2007. And, you know, like Brother Hamilton said many times, your beautiful car, the rust will take over. It will take over. Needs repair, the junkyard. The same with your house. Well, I got a house. I got all kinds of stuff that needs done on it. It's getting a little bit of age on it. Goods get stolen. Your family can be taken in a moment. I talked to a guy yesterday. He's like, I was serving the Lord. And all of a sudden, my wife and my child get killed in a car wreck. And he says, I was mad at God. He hadn't got over it yet. And I explained to him, look, God's not the one that stole your kids. And your wife, it's the devil. But that's the way it can happen. Or you get your sights set on your family, your kids. They can rebel. They can move. All kinds of things can happen. Or what about the man that marries the trophy wife? Here's my treasure. Well, guess what? He might find out she's been cheating on him, and inevitably, she's going to be getting older. And I'm telling you, the ones you see on TV that have plastic surgery that are in their 80s and trying to look like they're still in their 30s, they should have just let it age, yeah. in my opinion. It looked a whole lot better, because it's just like, what kind of face is that? You don't even look like what you used to look like. But that's just the way it does. It works both ways. 
waiting age kind of do you in with the trophy wife or husband either way and the person is controlled by what people think that's their treasure you know you're never going to be satisfied with that you know you're never going to have enough you're always going to be disappointed by somebody that's just the way it's going to work no matter how hard you try so the thieves are there the rust the moths they're always there to take your earthly treasures they're going to steal your goods steal your health steal your family steal your job steal your freedom steal your reputation and if you make it through life even if you make it all the way through life and you're one of those rare creatures that you look better when you're 85 than you did when you were 35 and there are a few people like that and you got all the money prestige wealth and your health's been good you're one of those rare people there's another thief that's just waiting death and it's going to leave you with nothing it's going to steal everything isn't it so that was the test of job that was the test of job wasn't it satan comes before god he says hey he only serves you because you give him treasures is that what he basically told him you put a hedge about him is literally what he said about his house, about all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands. His substance is increased in the land. But the devil says, but you put forth your hand now and touch all he has. I'm going to tell you what he'll do because the majority of people down there where I'm roaming to and fro, this is what they do when that happens. Like that guy I talked to yesterday. He says he'll curse you to your face if you do that. And the Lord says, all right, well, behold, I'm not the one that does this. He's in your power. Gave him over to the devil's power. And the treasures of Job's heart, whether they were or not, was severely tested, weren't they? Because here comes the devil. Took his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, all of his servants, and the greatest loss of all. They're all partying, all his kids in the eldest brother's house. And here comes the devil, Mr. Wind, knocks the house down, caves in on top of him, kills every single one of his kids. Now, he's going through that all in one day. And I'm saying, how do we think we would react to that kind of adversity? Ask yourself that. I mean, I'd be thinking, God surely hates me. But everything of his was taken. If that was where his treasures were, he'd have never recovered, would he? But here's Job's response. He said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return hither. That's the truth. And he says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Because guess who was wrong? The devil. He didn't do what the devil said he would do. Because Job's heart, his treasure, really was the Lord, wasn't it? And even more so after he got to the end of that trial. So Job did what Jesus commanded in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, but, he says, don't be like that, Jesus. says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through or steal. He said, we should be laying up treasures in heaven. Well, how do we do that? Just turn to Matthew 5, one chapter back. We'll look through Matthew here real quick. So we say God rewards works of righteousness. Start in verse 11. He says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why? For great is what? Your reward where? In heaven, not on earth. 
That persecution is not much of a reward, but there is a reward waiting for you in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In the same chapter, look in verse 46. And he says this, For if you love them which love you, what does he say? What reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. So God says you love your enemies, somebody that's persecuting you, treating you wrong. He says there's going to be a reward for you. Then look in chapter 6. We were just in chapter 6. Look in verse 6. And it's about this with prayer and giving and, and everything else. He says, but thou, when you pray, enter into thy closet. And when you have shut the door, pray to thy father, which is in secret. And the father, which sees in secret, shall reward you. Isn't that what it says? And look in verse 18, that you appear not unto men to fast, but unto the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret, he says, he shall reward you. And turn over to chapter 10 of Matthew. Matthew 10, look in verses 41 to 42. He that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give a drink unto one of these little ones, a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no ways lose his what? His reward. You'd be rewarded for that. Go over to chapter 16. Chapter 16 and look in verse 27. It says there, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So there's going to be rewards going both ways, but he'll reward us for our righteousness. And the last place I'd like us to look, if you would please, is 1 Timothy 6. Beginning in verse 17, he says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute. So he's saying right there, it's not a sin to be rich. It's just a matter of what you do with them. Have you have your love on them? If you're miserly and you can't get rid of them and you're just building your barns bigger, that's the problem. So he never condemns somebody for being rich. That's not the problem in and of itself. But, verse 18, they do good, be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. That's the word fellowship, share. Look what it says, verse 19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. There'll be a reward. You don't have to be rich, you just have to be a giving person. And you're laying a good foundation for that day that's coming up. That's what he's telling us there. Amen. So unlike our earthly treasures that we work so hard for, God's rewards that we just saw there, he promises many times to reward us, they will last. They won't decay. They won't rust. They're put somewhere where nobody can touch them. In heaven. Treasures in heaven are secure. They don't need insurance. They don't need extended warranties. They're always trying to sell you extended warranties in case something happens because they're indestructible. There's spiritual, heavenly, eternal rewards waiting. <laughs> so everybody's wanting a safe investment, something that's not going to get touched by Wall Street. Here it is. We're reading about it right now. So he's saying nothing can touch your heavenly rewards. We just got to have spiritual vision, don't we? Because that's what Moses had. Moses saw it, and that's what made him great is he saw the reward that was coming his way because he could have had everything the world wanted, just like Solomon. 
Here's what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. He made a choice. Then to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The Bible never denies that sin is pleasurable. Doesn't deny that. But it's just saying it's only pleasurable for a season. And then as the old sermon goes, payday someday comes. But it went on to say about Moses, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures. We're talking about treasures than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. So he's saying there are treasures here. They were all his, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have had everything more than Donald Trump could have had it all. But he said, no, he's got spiritual vision. He's saying the reproach of Christ, he's saying, being reproached, afflicted, despised, the offscouring of the earth. He's saying he could see that that was greater riches by far than anything he could have had in Egypt, being the ruler of Egypt, having everything. And that's the spiritual vision we need to have. So look, when you work hard for your money and you put it in the bank, we think it's secure, don't we? But it has not always been that way in the United States of America. Did you know that? I saw this special one time back in 1876. Back then, if you put your life savings in a bank, it was not insured back then by the federal government. There was no FDIC insurance. So if the bank was robbed, guess what? You were out of luck, so to speak. And that's the way it was. So one time, Jesse and Frank James and the younger brothers, they thought, you know, we've been down there in Missouri. We're going to go up to Minnesota and we're going to rob a big, fat Minnesota bank. But they kind of underestimated the citizens of Minnesota because the citizens of Minnesota are like, we don't really like you taking our treasures, Jesse James. They got every gun they could get hold of. And I mean, they blew holes in those guys and they, Jesse James barely got out of there, shot them up pretty good. So the point is, the bank is not secure, but heaven is. Jesse and Frank James stole thousands of people's treasures out of their banks in their day. Hardworking citizens, but Jesse James cannot get hold he can't rob the bank where our rewards are stored in heaven. He can't. Our inheritance is saying is eternally safe. It is. Guarded by God Almighty, the sovereign, all-powerful creator of the universe. He, he's our guard. I'd like to see him get through that. <laughs> they won't. And that's what we have in 1 Peter 1. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. If we could just remember that. It's just so easy to have tunnel vision and just see like what's in front of you today instead of looking eternally. But that's what Moses did. That's what we said. So we're all storing up treasure somewhere. That's the point of the message today. We're either storing them up here. We're working on getting more here, storing up more here, or we're storing them up in heaven. Treasures are either going to be secure or they're going to slip through your fingers like the wind is what we said. So it goes on to say, Jesus, if you go back to Matthew chapter 6, if you're not there, 
He goes on to say in verse 21, which whatever place you're storing your treasures in, he's saying that is where your heart's going to be. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the heart is the key. The heart is the center of your personality. It's where your motivation comes from. It is you. It's you. So just turn a few chapters over to chapter 12 in Matthew. Matthew. Verses 33 to 35. And Jesus says this. He says, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good what? Treasure of the heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart will bring forth evil things. He's saying we are like trees. He's describing our hearts. And that tree, whatever your heart is, whatever that tree is, that's the kind of fruit you're going to produce. And if you have an evil heart, it's impossible for you to produce good fruit. It doesn't happen. Ultimately, that's the way it's going to be. Some people, the Bible talks about They try to make their fruit appear different than their heart. It's artificial fruit. And what are those people called in the Bible that are like that? They're called hypocrites. Talk religious, come to church, read their Bible, raise their hands. But the tree, the heart has never been touched, never been changed. Have no real heart for purity, for holiness, artificial fruit. And one day it says it's going to be exposed. That's what Jesus said. So the Pharisees and the scribes appeared to be lovers of God, outwardly pious in all they did, words and deeds. They were busy. So we're saying everybody's storing up treasure. They were busy storing up treasure, just not in heaven. So they had their reward, Jesus said, their treasure, the esteem of men, the awe of men. People thought they were holy. That's what they wanted because they could quote the Bible, had all these insights into Scripture. He's saying they got their reward. They had their treasures. That's where it was. So they like the praise of men, religious hypocrites, because that's where their heart is. But as Paul wrote, but beloved, we're persuaded better things of you, is what I'm saying. I'm persuaded better things of who I'm talking to here. Things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And so what's the answer for us as Christians? It's Colossians 3, 1 and 2. He says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affections on on things above and not on things of the earth. So the principle that Paul and Jesus is saying, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The principle they're trying to teach us is that whatever the goal that we have established for our lives, wherever we've set our affections, whoever has our loyalties, that's our treasure. And that's where our hearts are going to follow. So I'm on my backyard. I got this part where I come off my driveway and it's going to determine how my lines look in the whole rest of my big backyard. And if I just look at the grass in front of me, tunnel vision like that, next thing you know, my line's all bowed and every other line for there on out is going to be as bowed looking as that unless I leave grass uncut. But what do I have to do? We're saying where your goal, your heart, your direction, what your affections are set on. This is going to determine where your heart is. So what I have to do is I got a fence and I got a post. It's perfect. I stare ahead beyond what's in front of me at that post. And as long as I keep my eyes on that post, guess what? My line is incredibly straight and all the rest of them come out straight, too. 
And that's the principle of what they're saying here. We've got to keep our eyes on the spiritual realities, have our affections set on things above. And when that happens, your heart's going to go that way. If you got your affection set on things that hurt, your heart's just going to follow right in line, isn't it? And that's where it'll be. So our heart's going to follow when it's set on God's kingdom and righteousness, and everything will work out for us, won't it? If that's the way it is. So Abraham was that way. He's another example, another illustration. A hundred years old before he finally got the honor that was due him of an old man that lived in the Middle East back then. Because the firstborn son was a major big deal back in that culture. They got the double portion of the estate, the leadership of the family. They cared for the mother until death, provided for their sisters until they got married. And so... For Abraham, Isaac was the one that he's going to carry on even more than all of that. He's going to carry on the promise that God had given him. He says, unto thy seed I will give this land, and he that shall come forth out of thy own bowels shall be thine heir. Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if you can number them, so shall thy seed be. And so once he came, miraculously came, it had been easy, wouldn't it, for Isaac to bend Abraham's idol, his treasure, that he wasn't willing to give up, I think it would have been real easy. And here comes this test again. God tests us many times to see what our idols are. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I tell thee of. Genesis 22, 2. Is it wrong for Abraham to love Isaac? Is it wrong for us to love our children, our, our parents? It's not wrong, is it? But is it wrong for us to love them more than we love God? It is. That's what it is. It is. So how could his supreme love for God be proven? How could he prove that where his treasure was? By his obedience to that command. So here he is. He takes that boy up, ties him up. He's got the knife ready, getting ready like that. And God, he passed the test, didn't he? It says in Hebrews, he believed God would raise him from the dead, do whatever he had to do to keep his word. But he was willing to sacrifice his son right there, that treasure, the greatest treasure he had. And God stops him. That angel says, bring incarnate Christ, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your greatest treasure. He says, not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. So, hey, we all say, don't we? We get saved, I'll give anything up for Jesus. Doesn't matter what it is. But when the test comes, do we? That's what we have to ask ourselves. And we all get tested in different ways and many times. And that proves where our heart is. But what happens a lot of times is when your vision gets cloudy and you can't see clearly, you justify your sins. And that brings me to the next point, verses 22 to 23. When our heart or or I so to speak, is not holy towards the Lord, your vision gets blocked and you're in darkness. Look what it says, verses 22 to 23. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye is single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? So when people have healthy eyes or single eyes, it means they can clearly see where they are going. So what does Jesus mean by that? By a single eye. And I think it means singleness of purpose and an undivided loyalty towards the Lord. So 
it's saying whatever your ambition, whatever your ambition is set on, it's going to affect your whole body, your whole life, your entire life. And so the good eye, the single eye, is the one that is set on God only, unwavering in its gaze on him and its intent on following him fully. And when that happens, he's saying your path will be bright and clear. You'll have light thrown on everything you do, every decision you make. And you'll be so full of light, you'll be light to others. Isn't that what Matthew 5 says? Be like a city set on a hill. But he's saying those that have the evil eye have their spiritual vision blocked. And when that happens, it's saying light can't get through. So people that have cataracts, their vision becomes cloudy and eventually dark. It's the number one cause of blindness in the world. Something forms in front of that eye is blocking that light from getting through there is what happens. And so your eye controls where your body's headed. And if it's dark, then the body is headed in darkness. That's what happens. And so what causes spiritual cataracts? What causes spiritual cataracts? If you turn over to Ezekiel, he tells us. Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. And it says there, Ezekiel writes, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts, and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. So they've got their idols right in front of their eyes. They can't see where they need to go. Their treasures are not the treasures of the Lord. The treasures of the earth is what he's saying there. And it should I be inquired at all by them. Therefore speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, every man of the house of Israel that sets up his idols in his heart and puts the stumbling block of iniquity before his face and comes to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him that comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent. And turn yourself from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel or of the stranger that sojourns in Israel, which separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. And I will set my face against that man. It will make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet be deceived when he has spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeks unto him. That the house of Israel may go no more astray from me, neither be polluted any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, saith the Lord. So a person has that idol set before their face. They can't see where they're going. And they're going in a bad way. And God says, you need to remove that idol from repent and turn back. And he's saying, I will be your God. That's what has to happen. So if you don't destroy the idol, it's saying the idol will destroy you. And that's what happened in Mark chapter 10. He comes to Jesus. He's religious. And a lot of times we can be religious without removing our idols. We justify them somehow. And he comes to Jesus. He comes running up to him, kneels down in front of him. Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? Seems like a seeker, doesn't he? This guy's got to be serious. But he's got something right there that's clouding his vision. 
It's going to keep him from heaven because Jesus says, you've got to deal with that idol that you've set before your face, all your riches, your treasures. And what does he tell him to do? He says, sell everything you have. Give it away. Give it to the poor. And then he says, you'll have what? Treasure where? Treasure in heaven. And guess what? That guy, like Israel of old, he wasn't willing to remove that idol in front of his face. No, you know what it says he did? He put his face down and he walked sadly away. He's walking the wrong way. Jesus said, come follow me. Do all that and come follow me. You'll have eternal life. But he wasn't really that serious about it, was he? He seemed to be. And that's a hard thing. It's by the grace of God that we'll be willing to give up the idols that he asked us to give up. And he wants everything. He wants all of our heart. He's God Almighty. He deserves that. And that brings us down to verse 24 back in Matthew 6. And it's, you cannot serve, he says here, you can't serve two masters, verse 24. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon, because both of them demand total allegiance. Both of them do. So Jesus isn't talking about two employers, because some of you guys have two jobs. You can work for two employers. No, he's talking about two slave masters, slave ownership, and that doesn't work because you cannot, it's impossible to divide your allegiance between two slave owners. Because <laughs> one of them's got you and you work for him and you're his property back then and that's what he's talking about. He says, you can't do that. So he's saying, hey, you all may think that you can give God part-time allegiance. You can show up for church on Sunday or do a little bit of whatever. Listen to some music when you're driving and that somehow that's acceptable. But Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way because if God doesn't have all of your loyalty, then he's saying, really, your loyalty is not to me at all. It's to your wealth, your money or your things. And when your devotion is that way, do you know what that's called? Covetousness. And I still believe the Bible calls covetousness what? Idolatry. It's definitely a sin, but it's idolatry. And one man says this, Jesus doesn't say it's unspiritual to serve two masters. He says it's impossible to serve both God and mammon. You can't do it. Cannot do it. And the key is the word serve. So like I've said already several times, it's not a sin to have money, property, a wife, children, or a home, but none of those should be your master. Those should be made, not necessarily your wife and your children, to serve you, but the things you have, the wealth you have, the possessions you have, they should serve you. You're the master. Because there's an old proverb that's been around for many years, and that is money is a good servant but it's a bad master. Money rules you, it's a bad master. What are we basically talking about here? Where your treasure is, where your loyalty is, who has all your affection, your loyalty. What are we saying here? It's the first commandment, isn't it? Obeying that, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what God's saying here. He should be first, foremost, and only. You can just listen to this, what Martin Luther wrote. This is good. He says, in dealing with that first commandment, he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is, he says, You shall have and worship me alone as thy God. 
And Martin Luther says, how is that to be understood? What does it mean to have a God? And here's his answer. A God means that from which we are to take refuge in all distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him from the whole heart. As I have often said that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. That now I say upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Martin Luther went on to say that is as much to say as this. See to it that you let me alone be your God and never seek another. That is, whatever you lack of good things, expect it of me and look to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep and cling to me. I, yes, I will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only let not your heart cleave to or rest in any other. And here we thought the faith message came in the 70s. <laughs> That's the faith message, isn't it? That's it in a nutshell. Martin Luther back in the 1500s. And it's even <laughs> before that. So what happens when you trust in uncertain riches and set your heart on it? You'll do whatever you have to to get them is the way it works. You'll overcharge when you can and justify that. You'll cheat on taxes, work on Sundays, never see your family, quit giving to the Lord's work, or you'll grudgingly either give or barely give to people that you see have a need. So that's where Jesus, he goes on in verses 25 through the rest of this end of this chapter. He gives a practical way of whether we can show whether we serve God or man. He says, if you worry is dominating your life, you've got your faith in the wrong thing. That's the wrong God. He says, I will take care of you. You have to trust me to do that. Isn't that what he's saying? Seek ye first, don't be worrying about all this other stuff. He says, I'll more than supply your needs. And we've had many testimonies here where God's been faithful to do that. But that God, Mammon... There was a Greek god named Mammon. And at one point it represented when you took your wealth or whatever and entrusted it somewhere to be kept. But after a while, the, the meaning get to be that's what you trusted in, your mammon, what you're trusting in. And he's saying you can't serve God or this mammon. You can't trust both. can't serve both. Trust both. That mammon has got a voice. You know, telling you, you better worry and bow the knee to me or you'll never have anything. You've got to come after me, Mammon's saying. You'll have no clothes, no food, no shelter if you don't follow me. That's what he says, but the Lord Jesus Christ says just live a just and righteous life. If you'll do that, you can work, but you don't have to cheat, lie, worry, overwork. He said just trust me and I'll provide everything you need. And in ways, how many people, we got testimonies in there, I've experienced Maybe everybody has ways that God provides that you could never have dreamed up because you're trusting him. And you're like, I'm not going to worry about it because the things I've tried to strive after to get by either working more or some kind of scheme, they never work. They all just fall down one way or another. But you trust the Lord. He provides. That's what he is. Trust me like the birds do is what the Lord would say. So in conclusion, just answer this question, each of us in our hearts. What do we really treasure in our life today? doesn't matter about yesterday, but what do we really treasure in our life today? So is your heart drawn to God's word, to private prayer? Do you treasure that? To serving God in holiness and truth? 
Is that where we're at? Or is the highlight of your day watching TV, spending time talking, working, sports? Where is the treasure? So we all have to ask ourselves, where's the treasure of our heart? Is our heart focused on the world and how we can be most comfortable in it? And if that's the direction, the best thing to do is say, hey, maybe my heart's really never been changed. Maybe I really never have been born again, if that's just the way it is. So we all go through periods like that, but if that's just, honestly, that's just where I'm at. And it's better just to be honest and deal with it in that way. So Jesus is telling us here, we need to make our Heavenly Father our only priority. If not, he says, we're going to be blinded by idols and we'll be walking in darkness. But if we make God and living right before him, our number one priority, he'll call us everything else. All these other treasures he'll take care of for us, won't he? That's what he says he'll do. And I want to close with this. Matthew Henry, I don't know how many of you have read his commentaries. I'd say if you can get them for $39, six volumes, they are worth getting. Technically, he's usually, his technical things are very accurate, but it's more a devotion, just the insights this man has. I just would highly recommend you getting them. But a pious, godly man, Matthew Henry. So what happened to him one day? He got robbed. He got robbed, and here's what he wrote in his diary. He says, this is a prayer he wrote after he was robbed. He says, Lord, I thank you that I have never been robbed before. That although they took my money, they spared my life. That although they took everything I had, it wasn't very much. And I thank you that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. I think he got it, didn't he? And if you read George Mueller's life, he definitely got it. That guy had millions of dollars passed through his hands and died more or less, not broke, but he didn't have hardly anything. Because he got it. And imagine his reward. And man, do you talk about Psalm 91. George Mueller lived to be 92 years old, I believe. He was in his 90s. Saintly old man died in his bed peacefully. Went and walked over and got a glass of milk and a cookie. Went back to his bed and there he was. They found him the next day, but he wasn't sick. I mean, God just blessed him and rewarded him for the life he lived because you read his book. It's back there if you want to read it, it's free. He was solely dedicated. His treasure was God. His treasure was in heaven. And that's the way we should be. That's the kind of attitude we should have because Jesus is saying, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. And Father, I ask that if any of us here, Lord, have idols that we've set up in front of our face, Lord, you'll clearly show us that and help us to deal with them. And if we need to be refocused, Lord, on seeking you only, seeking you first, seeking you and your kingdom primarily in our lives, I ask you'll help refocus us there, Lord, so that we're not stumbling around in darkness, not heading the wrong direction, Lord, but that we're headed towards your kingdom in these last days. And I ask that you'll speak to all of us today, Lord. Speak to all of us. Show all of us where our treasure is, clearly, that we can be honest with ourselves and, and make any changes that we need to make. And I thank you that you'll do that for us, Father, that you love us and you correct us in love. And I thank you for helping us to examine ourselves today. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.